Yeah, what are some of the commonalities that you see amongst yeah. the people that you work with that perhaps hinder them from achieving their particular goals? There's two main things. One of the big things that I see is that general activity is pretty low in most people. Um, and then on top of that, one of the biggest issues that I find is that stress responses that involve eating are problematic for many people. Like emotional eating and craving are a really big challenge. I think that the term emotional eating, it's so common because it's one of those things that we're taught from a very young age of how to address negative emotions such as stress, sadness, boredom, all those kind of things because it gives us those, that momentary sense of pleasure, right? Yeah. But the problem with these is that it tends to lead to guilt, shame, lowered feelings of self-worth. And to me, it's almost identical to an abusive relationship because let's face it, if you're experiencing guilt after performing an action, is that really something that's going to help you grow? I would argue it's probably not. What's up, guys? Welcome to the Dr. Joey Munoz Show. Today, I have a very special guest on, a friend of mine who I actually met um, on Instagram, which is a funny thing to say, but I guess in today's age, we meet a lot of people online and I'm very happy uh, I met this person because he is a fantastic coach and a fantastic professional who's putting out incredible educational content online. My friend, Dr. Alan Bacon. Alan is the owner of Maui Athletics, an online nutrition and fitness coaching company. In this episode, we're going to deep dive into a ton of really interesting topics. First off, we're going to talk about how to even build an online coaching business, which I feel like something a lot of people want to get into and don't really know how to even enter. And then we're really going to take a deep dive into stressful and emotional eating, how to identify whether you're eating out of hunger or eating out of stress. And we're going to discuss a bunch of very practical and useful tools and tips that you can implement to help improve your adherence to your overall nutrition plan and increase your likelihood of achieving your nutrition, health, and physique goals. My man, how are you doing today? How's your day going so far? I'm doing great, Joey. Thank you for having me on first off. My day is just beginning. I mean, it is 8 a.m. here in Hawaii where I live. And, um, you know, this is a common thing for me with podcasts getting on because my time frame is, is so inconvenient for everybody else. But yeah, it's nice because I can get these in when I'm, you know, fresh, get some breakfast in, get up and have a talk with somebody that really knows what they're doing and, and get down to brass tacks. Um, but yeah, you know, can't complain and ready to get rolling. Awesome, man. Well, thank you for being here today. Um, I know we're going to talk about some practical stuff in terms of stress eating, emotional eating that's going to really help people think about perhaps why they set certain goals how to moderate their behaviors and really think about perhaps why we eat, which is, I think, probably a topic that most of us don't really even uh, take a second to think about, right? But before we get there, I really want to know a little bit more about you, man. How about you tell me a little bit about your background? I know your original professional career was not really in fitness, so I'd love to hear a little bit about that and how you ended up in Hawaii. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of a circuitous story, but a, but a good one for me, and I think it can be a good example for some people that... Um, are looking to make changes in their lives and are a little bit hesitant about doing it. So I was a doctor of dental surgery for 10 years. It was a great profession. It was a lot of fun. But as you can imagine, medicine in, in America today is, is it's very intensive. Um, you know, and, and I remember at one point I was doing surgery at eight 30 on December 24th. I was supposed to be going out with my, my in-laws to have, you know, Christmas Eve dinner. And at the same time, 
my father was going through this issue where he was battling throat cancer. And all of that was kind of adding up. And I had a conversation with him because he had been a doctor for 35 years. And I said, hey, you know, if there was anything that you could do differently in your life, what would it have been? And one of his comments was, I wish I would have spent some more time to enjoy life, to kind of live in the moment. And that struck a chord with me. And so, you know, after dealing with those two things kind of back to back, I thought about things for a while. I turned to my wife, who is also big into fitness, and I said, hey, you know, what I'd really like to do is I'd like to look into some coaching and, um, and start a company and kind of do this as a side job because this is something that I'm really passionate about. I mean, I'd always been a lifter. I had started lifting when I was 17. I'm 41 now, so that's a, that's a good level of experience. I had been working in the dietary supplement industry for sports supplements for 10 years at the time. So I had a foot in the door. And um, she was all for it because she was a CrossFit regionals athlete. She was a, an American record holder in Olympic weightlifting. She went to Worlds in 2019 and got second at Worlds. So there was some you know, background and knowledge there that we could use to impart to other people and have a successful business. Yeah. And so we did it. And for two years, I worked Maui Athletics, which is our, our coaching company, as a side job while I continued to practice. And um, what I like to bring up about that is for people that are considering getting into coaching, understand that you may need to work two jobs when you first start, because the reality of the matter is coaching doesn't pay a whole lot of money when you start. Mm -hmm. um, and even when you get a good following, coaching can often just put you into a, a comfortable type of situation rather than a, hey, I'm going to make you know millions of dollars type of situation. And that's okay. The important thing is finding that balance between, okay, well, how much money do I need to live comfortably and what can I do about my own quality of life? And so for me, this was a wonderful move for quality of life. I mean, I'm more stress-free than I, I've ever been before, and I really, really love what I do. And, um, and you know, I was one of the lucky ones where things seemed to kind of fall into place and find that, that passion that I was looking for. Now, it doesn't hurt that... Um, you know, we, we ended up naming the company Maui Athletics because I had always wanted to live in Maui. And I tricked my wife. I, she hates when I say this, but I, I love putting it this way. When we were getting married, she came up and she said, hey, you know, I, I'm planning the wedding. You know, what color flowers do you want? What, you know, what do you want for, for this or for that? And I was brave enough to say, I don't care, which is probably the worst thing that you could possibly say to a wife that's planning at your wedding. But I had a caveat there and I said, okay, look, I don't care, but don't take this in the wrong way. I don't care because, and I think most men could probably relate to this. I don't care what colors yeah. the thing is. I don't, I don't care. You know, the only thing that I care about is let me have a little bit of say in music and let me have a little bit of say in the food and we're yeah. good to go. And I'm going to have a good time. Yeah. And, <laughs> and my wife is, is reasonable enough and she knows me enough to say, okay, he's not being a dick. He's yeah. telling me, you know, you know what he really it feels about this, but the way that I put that out, I said, I don't care about this planning. As long as we stay within our budget, do whatever you want to do. But what I want to do is I want to plan the honeymoon. And I had been to Maui in the early 2000s, and I absolutely loved it out here. And um, so I thought that I would plan the honeymoon and you know take the stress off of her after all the planning for the wedding. And then she could just relax and I could have something that was fun to me because I love planning vacations. 
And, um, and after spending 10 days here, I turned to her and I said, Hey, would you like to live here? And she's like, of course I would like to live here. You know, this is, we get to go to world-class beaches every day. You know, we both love hiking, being outside. That's our thing. And, um, and so we were like, all right. And so we named the business Maui athletics a couple of years later, we bought a home here and, um, ended up moving out during COVID the height of COVID and made it work ever since. But, you know, my point with all of this is. I know that people have these passions and have these concerns about pursuing them because there's a difference in a job that can support your lifestyle and in a, in a job that you can feel really excited about. Mm-hmm. Um, so what my, my what I would recommend there is figure out a way that you can dip your feet into that passion and see if it'll work out for you. You know, maintain those jobs that provide you with the security until you're able to make that a lifestyle and see if the quality of life is actually there or if it's a pipe dream. And in some cases it is, but even if it is, at least you've given that a shot and then you can, you know, sit back and be a little bit more comfortable making the money and and using that as, you know, a hobby on the side rather than always thinking, well, what if I would have done this? You know, so it's, it's a circuitous way to get to that answer. and, And it was kind of a long way, but it's, it's strange to go from a, highly protected type of job where you know that you're always going to be paid well, you know that you're always going to be in demand to go into coaching. And you can probably relate to this. I mean, yeah. coaches are a dime a dozen. And coaches are a dime a dozen because there's there's no bar to entry. You yeah. know, you don't even need a certification to say, hey, I'm a coach. Yeah. And so what do you do to set yourself apart? Well, having a doctorate doesn't hurt. Because you can put doctor before whatever your name is, but exactly. the, the having doctor does not mean that you're really good at what you do. Yeah. What it does mean is you are probably more likely to have one, the drive and two, the understanding to Sorry. research information and be able to incorporate that in, in a proper way. And I think that, that one of the things that all of these, um, postgraduate and, and, you know, higher learning institutions tend to do is they teach you how to be a little bit more critical of information and how to disseminate things like these studies. And, and then we can say, okay, well, the study says this. And um, obviously studies aren't the end all be all, but they are a starting point. And then you say, okay, well, given this study, what have I seen in practical application? And can I improve that practical application? Mm-hmm. Or does this make me think about this in a different way? Right. And then I say, okay, well, we don't know as much as we thought. So we're going to continue going with this practical application. But that's where you get that blend of how do I bring in my background expertise into something and make this ultimately better for my clients? Yeah, certainly, man. You know, I, I've always said that the most valuable thing I got out of doing a PhD was the ability to think critically. It's not even like the information 100%. because honestly, half the information I've forgotten because I, I don't use it on a on a daily basis, right? I took like uh, graduate level epigenetic courses, learned it, 20 different mechanisms on silly different things that I don't remember anymore, took a high level like endocrinology courses, learned all about uh, different organ systems. And obviously I know uh, the majority of the information, but the very specific information, the very specific details you forget. But what you don't forget is the ability to think critically, right? Which is what you're really challenged um, to do in a in a higher uh, graduate level degree. I think most people think it's like, oh, you do a master's or a PhD, you just learn a ton more information. 
you do learn some more information, but honestly, the bulk of the information, at least in the field of nutrition or exercise physiology, you really do learn a lot of it in undergraduate, right? And then yeah. that graduate degree is really teaching you to expand the way you think, teaching, teaching you to expand the way you communicate, how you understand research. And those are all skills, right? And I think those are mm -hmm. skills that translate really well to other aspects of your life, whether it's coaching, if you do that as a career or whatever else your career is, right? And as you were talking about your transition from the medical field to coaching, um, I can relate to that strongly because I guess I, I haven't even thought of it this way or haven't thought of it in a while. But for me, it was really difficult transitioning from getting my PhD to then doing nothing with my PhD, right? Because as you mentioned, you can be a coach without without any sort of knowledge, right? Right. And of course, that's not ideal. But it was the thought of like, man, I've I've been busting my ass getting my PhD for the past four years. I've really been uh, honing in my skills to be an academic, but I just did not feel aligned with that at all. The the passion wasn't there. No, and it wasn't even that the passion wasn't there. It was that I started to learn things about like the academic culture that I really didn't like. It's very clickish. Yes, that's one of the <laughs> types of personalities that are attracted to that type of career were not the type of people that I related to very well. Let's just mm -hmm. like put it that way, right? There was a lot of like politics involved. There was a lot of like ass kissing involved. And I just like wasn't yeah. about any of it. And then I just had some poor experiences throughout my PhD. And even before my PhD, I always had an entrepreneurial drive and I knew I wanted to have my own business in like the nutrition and exercise science field. And I had no clue what it was going to be. I didn't really even know what coaching was. Mm -hmm. um, but thanks to a couple of like series of fortunate events, I am doing what I do now. And I, I've made a whole episode on my background and how I got into coaching, so I won't get into it here. But one thing I wanted to ask you is, I guess for people that perhaps are listening who might be in a similar position in terms of wanting to pursue a different career, wanting to do something different with their life than they're currently doing, and perhaps they're in a place that's very secure right now, it can be scary, right? What was that transition for you like? emotionally psych psychologically was it difficult or did you feel pretty confident um i'd love to know a little bit about that so this is a funny answer because i was probably more naive than anything else okay and it's a funny answer because i don't want to make people feel bad when i when i was making the transition i was very excited and i didn't i didn't really stop to think about what if this goes wrong yeah <laughs> that's probably that's probably not what most people do um, you know, I did, I did plan it. And so, I mean, we were talking before we even got on recording that I'm a planner to an extent and I like to have some background and I was more, I was more focused on like, look at how cool my logo looks. And this is going to, this is going to be great. And then I can, you know, and like, I make shirts and stuff like that. Like half of my drive was like, I get to make my own shirts, like just for me to wear. And so I think that for most people. You're going to have some sleepless nights and I think that that's okay. But that's also why I really highly stress have a second, have your main job and maintain it for a while, at least a couple of years in most cases, at least a couple of years. Um, and I remember, don't quote me on these exact numbers, but I remember looking at data from the National Academy of Sports Medicine where they were coming out and they were talking about the attrition rates of new coaches and the attrition rates were something like 90% after the first year. Because the reality is when you first get into coaching, the average coach 
makes between like thirty five and forty thousand dollars a year. Yeah, and um, and that can be very discouraging. But um, think of that period more as your internship, even though it is like when you're when you're actively working. Think about more of that as an internship. Find a mentor as best you can in your area. Um, you know, or online now we've got, we've got, you know, a lot of resources to be able to do that, but find somebody who's had some experience because the reality is there is no single cert out there. That's really that good. And this is not to get down on certs. It's just the amount of information or the amount of experience that you would need is just, it's, it's problematic to fit that all into a cert. Um, and so finding a mentor is probably the first best thing that you can possibly do. Understand that you're going to have some sleepless nights, that you're going to have um, you're going to have reservations, and you're probably going to think back, is this the right move for me? And if you're starting to think back on that a lot, then just like when you're working with clients and you adjust expectations, and adjusting expectations down can be a really good thing sometimes. Maybe your client comes to you and they say, okay, well, I can work out four days a week, and they're an accountant, and then all of a sudden March hits, and now they can no longer work out four days a week because tax seasons is in place. So then you drop it to two or three, do the exact same thing in your life and say, okay, well, I wanted to have this business up and running and be doing this full time by the end of my first year, but that's just not panning out. And I will continue to do this as a side gig. And then you're making a little bit extra money doing something that you really enjoy and you really love. And that's okay. And it could take off later and it may not, but you're still getting benefits out of it and you're still doing something that you enjoy. So I think that adjusting those expectations is really the right move there. Yeah, I think that's a very uh, positive and balanced way of thinking of it. It's funny that you mentioned that you were so naive because you were in the medical field for 10 years. And I, I, I guess my, from talking to you, learning a little bit more about you, um, you're definitely a little different than I thought, perhaps. I thought you probably would have been like way more calculated and like, uh, more thorough in terms of like your thought process in terms of switching careers but I think you and I are very similar in the sense of like that sounds good I want to do that I'm just going to do that without really giving it much thought would you would you agree with that there was it was it was a combination of the two because yeah. certainly when I was when I was making that shift I was like okay well I'm going to maintain my job and I was running I was the head of a clinic um that had three dentists an oral surgeon an endodontist a periodontist two pediatric dentists and i was running that it's like coordinating mm. doctors is like herding sheep or herding cats believe it or not and um and so because there's so many egos involved particularly when you get into like um you know the surgeons uh there's so many doctors egos involved. have egos yeah ever, it's believe it or not and so and so there was that and so i had that i think that i was less stressed because i knew no matter what happens with this, I'm going to have enough money to survive. And mm -hmm. so that, you know, it's people are really funny when they're like, money doesn't buy happiness. That's bullshit. Yeah. Money certainly buys happiness up to an extent. Yes. Yes. You know, and money, money might not buy complete happiness, but money certainly lessens the stress that you deal with on a daily basis. And so for me, that stress wasn't really in play. So then my focus was, okay, well, what do I do to come out of the gate as a viable choice for people. And a lot of it is, is appearance. And so I made sure to have a fully functioning website that had the ability to have me have my blog so I could put out some information to show that I actually have some idea of what I'm talking about. 
um, you know, a clear funnel to be able to sign up with me if you wanted to, a results section started to build over time. Um, you know, and, and, and trademarking all the things related to my business branding. I actually went through the, the, you know, national trademarking office and all that to do that from the very beginning, from day one. Um, you know, I was incorporating and trademarking and all that stuff. And I think that having that stuff as the basis of, okay, this is a legitimate business. I'm not just doing this on the side, really cut some stress. And then it was more like, let's see where this goes. And I was lucky in that, um, I had friends and family that knew, you know, that, that I knew what I was talking about just from personal experience. And I would say, Hey, you know, do you want to work with me? We'll do this at reduced rates. Oh, and that's another good thing that, that a lot of people don't tell you. If you're starting out, do everything at like 50% off and work with friends and family and everything like that. You know, the biggest thing in the beginning is literally just building a testimonial portfolio or a results portfolio because no, there's no other way that people are going to really understand what you can do for them. Yeah. And I know that a lot of the marketing companies are like, never devalue yourself. But this is, you know what a loss leader is? No. So a loss leader in, um, in, in business and economics is you do something that you know is probably going to lose you money in the short term because it's going to pay off in the long term. And maybe yeah. you feel like your time is much more valuable than what you're charging for those first yeah, yeah, 10, yeah. 10 clients. But I actually found that that worked out really, really well because I got some people that came in and they were people that I knew. And so they weren't, you know, people with unrealistic expectations or somebody that was going to hassle you a whole lot. And they stayed for a long period of time because they knew that they were getting a, a real bargain of a deal. And then they started to see really good results. So then you could start to use them as, as results and transformations, which certainly lends to credibility. So that's another trick that I would use if you were starting out or, or anybody listening was starting out, you know, consider doing a loss leader in the beginning because I think it's invaluable. Yeah. That's a really good point. I, I, um, I've heard both point of views, right. In terms of like, People arguing you should never discount your services and your time, but your explanation makes perfect sense as well, particularly for somebody who may be starting off, right? I think I think that once you're more established, um, discounting yourself consistently, I would agree with you probably yeah. shouldn't do it. But I do think that there is value in doing this strategically for certain reasons. And in the beginning, is certainly one of those times because like I said, I I think that once I started getting that results section and um, you know, I have a I have a pretty extensive one on my website and then people are, people start to look at it and they say, oh, this, it wasn't just like a one shot with, you know, one, one guy. It's like, look at these, you know, dozens and dozens and dozens, dozens of people that have had pretty dramatic, you know, long-term yeah. results. And that's when it really starts to say, okay, well, maybe this is worth an investment because the reality is this is an investment on the part of any person that ever wants to work with a coach. Yeah. And there are so many coaches out there. These people have a lot of of opportunity. And that's a good thing. It's a good thing for, for, for you as a coach, because, um, you know, I tell people all the time, Hey, you know, join my Facebook group, follow my Instagram, see what the kind of stuff that I put out, you know, does this align with the way that you think or what you're looking for? And then go to my webpage and look at my results and everything like that. And, you know, if you find someone else that's going to work better with you, certainly go work with them. There's enough clients for everybody. Yeah. Um, and finding the right ones for you is a, it's a very distinct thing because just like there are the right coaches for clients, there are the right clients for coaches. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. 
It is. You're, you're totally right. And that's one skill that I've learned over time, too, is like how to discern who you should and should not work with. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, man, I, I really appreciate you giving some really valuable insight into how to even like think about starting a business. What are things you should implement? Because I find myself, well, found myself and still find myself having some of these questions and not necessarily having a clear direction. It's maybe something I'd love to have a conversation with you um, sometime off air. But one yeah, thing absolutely. I really want, yeah, I, I would really appreciate that. Well, you know what's really cool about this? And this is one of my reasons that I love going on podcasts. Yeah. When you get on podcasts, particularly with people that know what they're doing, and that's one of the reasons that I really like you is that that you're you're educated, you've got the right you've got the right viewpoint on how to deal with nutrition and all these things. Um, you know, typically when you post I'm like, yeah, that's what I think. Yeah. And and that's that's a great thing. You don't have to agree with everything. Yeah. With a coach. And that doesn't mean they're a bad coach, but for the majority of stuff and for the base of stuff, you generally will if they're somebody who's well read. Um you know, I think that um that the real benefits to these podcasts is you can always find one or two things that you can pick up from what anybody in the podcast is saying. And, uh, and for the coaches here, this is, this is gold. You can pick up something and you can find like, okay, well, there's, there's this little strategy or there's this way of looking at things that I never thought about. Let me try to put that into, into my coaching and then see how that works. And over time, your coaching is always going to be unique, but it's going to be a patchwork quilt of all of these different experiences that you've had and all these different things that you've learned from different people. And, um, and there's not necessarily the right way forward for like a a distinct right way forward, but there is a right way forward for you. And so you integrate the things that work for you to get the results that you want for your clients. And I love the podcast because we can talk about these things and figure out, Hey, is there something else that I'm not doing or a different viewpoint that I could use and then make our own practices better? Yeah, no, trust me, man. That was one of the things strategically in terms of I was thinking like, should I focus more on podcasts? Should I focus more on YouTube? And the one thing that really convinced me with the podcast was one, I enjoy just having a natural conversation. But two, Mm. strategically, I was like, this is probably the best avenue to continue to learn and educate myself because I'll have conversations with people and I'll just learn things naturally as I'm producing content (laughs) it's it's the best way it's the best way for a couple things it's it's a really good way to establish relationships but it's it's probably the best way once you're an established coach to improve your coaching and um and you know people have asked me if i'm going to start a podcast Um, i've had a lot of my clients bring that up like hey you should start a podcast i'm one of those people that i would do a podcast if if I had like a partner to do a podcast, but I don't really want to do it myself mm-hmm. uh, because I kind of like that back and forth of like multiple ideas. I like round tables a lot, yeah. um, you know, and I've, I've been on some conference round tables and those are always really fun because um, like I said, when you can pull in some more ideas from, from different people, that's where things really start to get interesting. Yeah, for sure, man. Um, okay. So, I want to direct this conversation in a slightly uh, different direction, even though I'm enjoying what we're talking about tremendously. But I really want to talk now about some practical stuff when it comes to coaching and perhaps working through some of the main struggles that people work with, right? And perhaps we can start talking about um, with the majority of your clients, and I know you work with slightly different populations. I'm assuming that most people really want to improve their health. And aside from that, want to look a little bit better, 
right? And obviously, we we focus on both nutrition and training there. But when it comes to reducing body fat, improving, uh, I was going to say body composition, but obviously, resistance training is an equally important component there. But when it comes to just losing body fat, dropping body fat percentage, it really does come down to nutrition, right? So mostly, yeah. Yeah, what are some of the commonalities that you see amongst yeah. the people that you work with that perhaps hinder them from achieving their particular goals? I mean, one of the there's there's two main things. Um, one of the big things that I see is that general activity is pretty low in most people. Mm-hmm. Um, and then on top of that, one of the biggest issues that I find is that stress responses to um, that that involve eating are are problematic for many people. Um, you know, like emotional eatings and cravings are a really big challenge for a lot of people. Um, you know, and I think that the the term emotional eating, it it's so common because it's one of those things that we're taught from a very young age of how to address negative emotions such as stress, sadness, boredom, all those kind of things, because it gives us those that momentary sense of pleasure, right? Yeah. But the problem with these is that it tends to lead to guilt, shame, lowered feelings of self-worth. And to me, it's almost identical to an abusive relationship. Yeah. You know, it's this thing that you turn to, but it never really fulfills that need that you have to allow you to grow and to be more productive. Because let's face it, if you're experiencing guilt after performing, you know, an action, is that really something that's going to help you grow? And and I would argue it's probably not. Um you know, and there's multiple ways that people react to these things. Like some people with stress response to eating, they'll tend to overeat. That's the majority. Some will tend to not eat at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's me. I tend to stop eating. If I get really stressed, I basically go into fasting mode and it's something that I've had to break myself. So, um, you know, this idea of having an emotional regulation issue with, with eating and your relationship with food don't feel bad about having it because even coaches experience it. I mean, these people that are doing this day in and day out have these challenges and they're constantly working on it as well. Now, these stress responses, especially with food, they tend to um, they tend to develop in during during adolescence and childhood. And there was a an interesting um, study that gave me some good feelings about this. And I like to explain this to clients because I think it's a way to focus on this and then feel like we can actually do something to improve this. Um, Emotional eating is a learned habit. Now, there was a study that I'm not sure if you're familiar with this, Joey. Um, You may be, but uh, Hurl 2018. Have you ever heard of that one? I'm not sure. No. Okay. So this study, it's really cool. I always bring this up with emotional eating because I think that this can get the people that are struggling with this, when you're, when you're having cravings all the time, when you're having problems dealing with stress or boredom and you resort to food, I think that this can help you because this gives you the basis for saying, okay, well, I'm not a lost cause, even though I've been doing this maybe for decades. What they did was they took a twin cohort and this was a large twin cohort study that they followed for quite a while. And what the study found was that environmental factors and life experiences, um, explain nearly all of the reactions to food and stress. It wasn't genetics because if these are twins, they all have the same genetics. So when they took these people and they either evaluated their past experiences or put them under stressful situations, the response to that was what they monitored. And they found that, okay, we're not seeing the same response based off of 
which twin is which twin. Mm -hmm. We're seeing it based off of what kind of stress have we put this person under, and then they respond to that stress. Mm -hmm. And so what that does is it it's a wonderful thing. I mean, it it tells you that you're not doomed by your parents, mm -hmm. that there is something that you can do about this. And you have the chance to change. And this is a great place to start. Now, you have to realize, too, that this is going to take time. Um, you know, you're, you're going to have to unlearn decades of unproductive habits. So getting in there for the long haul is the important thing. Um, and, you know, accepting that you're going to screw up along the way. But the consistency that you put in is going to let you unlearn the productive habits and shift them into more productive means. Yeah, that's really interesting, man. Maybe, do you remember, maybe you do or you don't, um, were there some commonalities between uh, perhaps past experiences or certain environmental stressors that caused a particular type of response in the people who were more emotional eaters than others? There were, I mean, the larger effects of stress. So if you had a more significant uh, traumatic experience in life, that would tend to do it. It also depended on, and this is really important for parents in the audience, because you may inadvertently be causing future problems for your child and not even knowing it. So this is not something that you should get down on yourself. But once you understand it, it is something that you should probably address. Using food as rewards or ways to, um, to address bad feelings is probably the wrong way to go about it. Oh, you know, you had a basketball game, but you didn't do very well. Let's go get some ice cream. Oh, you know, you had the basketball game and you did well, let's go get some ice cream. And so then all of a sudden you're now resorting to food as yeah. your response to whatever's happening. Oh, you had a bad day. Um, you know, here's some donuts. Don't do that. You know, there's, there's more productive ways to be able to teach your kids or to teach yourself how to deal with stressor situations or, you know, boredom is a big one there. You know, if boredom is, is the, uh, the, the trigger. And then all of a sudden, every time you get bored, you start wandering around your fridge. Um, you know, maybe leave yourself a note on the fridge that says you're bored. Yeah. That's you know, and this is, and this is not to get down on the people that are eating because they're physically hungry because physical hunger. Yes. That is something that depending on what you're trying to do in, um, in your current goals is something that you should address. And so this is actually a, a, a nice segue into the next part that I, I like to have with my clients is I start to talk to them about the differences between emotional and physical hunger and identifying those two is because this identifying those two, because this can give you that background that you need to be able to make the decisions on, okay, well, am I physically hungry or is this something that is being brought on by the stressors, the boredom, the things that are happening in my life. And I don't really want to eat what I'm eating, what I'm, going to try to eat, but, um, but I feel compelled to rather than making that a mindful choice. And so what I like to point out, um, are five things related to this. Emotional hunger tends to be sudden, whereas physical hunger tends to creep up on you. Um, emotional hunger tends to crave specific high reward foods, whereas physically hungry, you tend to sound, feel like anything sounds good. And, um, you know, a really good test for this that you might have heard um, in some manner or another is the apple test. And in the apple test, if a client says, hey, you know, I'm hungry and I can't tell whether or not this is a physical or emotional hunger, I'll say, okay, well, would an apple fix this problem? And when they're like, no, an apple is bullshit, then we know, okay, well, you're not hungry. You are looking for a specific experience. You're looking for mouthfeel. You're looking for yeah. flavor. You're looking for something else. So it's not physical hunger. 
okay, great. We've identified that it's not physical hunger. It's an emotional hunger. Now, what do you want to do about that? Now that you know that brought to your, to the front yeah. of your mind, what do you want to do about that? And then they can make a decision based on that. Yeah. Um, emotional hunger tends to be mindless. It tends to be, um, located in the mind more than it is in the stomach. I mean, if you've got a physical hunger, you get those things like hunger pangs. Yeah. Um, you know, you, you tend to get rumbling in your stomach. Emotional hunger doesn't tend to come from that. It's that that sensory experience that I was talking about where you try to find something um, that meets those textures, criteria, tastes that you're looking for. And lastly, emotional hunger will often lead to guilt or anxiety, whereas physical yeah. hunger doesn't tend to do that. So if I was a person that was trying to learn how to essentially deal with these things, I would write those down and just keep those on a notepad or a reminder. And then you can ask yourself, okay, well, what category does this fall into? And if it falls into a physical hunger category, um, then you have some choices. You know, am I in an active cut where a little bit of hunger is expected? Mm -hmm. When you're in a calorie deficit, a little bit of hunger is expected. Okay, great. Well, then maybe I know that this is normal. This is nothing to worry about. I don't have to feel compelled to do something or feel an urgency to do something, and I'm fine. If you're feeling these things and it's coming out as an emotional hunger, then you have uh, you know, a couple more questions to ask yourself. Is this something that if I have this, am I going to be thrown off the rails and am I going to start binging food? Well, if that's the case, then you've kind of made the decision for yourself. It's probably not something that I should do. If this comes out and you say, well, it is an emotional hunger, but I feel that having this piece of brownie or whatever it is will be enough for me and then i will be able to more um more adequately stay consistent with my nutrition well then maybe it is a good choice but we've switched because we've stopped you and we've made you think about that emotional versus physical hunger it's no longer a hedonic response you are now starting to make a conscious choice instead of a mindless reaction to make that choice and this is how we start to move this into a more productive manner yeah man that's a absolutely beautiful explanation of the topic i was actually planning on asking you what are some signs for people uh, to be able to actually identify what behaviors they're partaking in right because that's step one you need to be able to identify what your behavior actually is mm -hmm. and, and as you mentioned beautifully it's not don't partake in the behavior it's then make an informed choice of whether you are going to partake in the behavior or not depending on various different factors right like what your goals are what you're trying to work on, et cetera, right? Well, so, and I think I think that that's where people get caught a lot of times. And I love how you how you pointed that out there because just because something is an emotional response doesn't mean that you can't find value in it as long as you make that conscious choice. Now, that conscious choice has to be made with a couple ideas in play. One, is this going to make life harder for me in the future? If I have this, am I going to constantly be thinking about this? And if that's the case, it's probably not a smart choice for you. Is it going to cause guilt? If that's the case, it's not a smart choice for you. Is this going to be something that I'm okay with? And I also understand that if I have that, uh, it's Super Bowl and I'm going to have a full pizza because I'm a man. And it's going to be a full meat pizza too because I'm a man. There's yeah, no, vegetables no vegetables whatsoever. No vegetables. no vegetables whatsoever. But in your mind, you say, man, I'm checking in with my coach in like three days. And I'm going to have this, but it's not always Super Bowl. And, um, and I know I'm probably going to be maybe three to five pounds because you're going to be holding a lot of sodium. You know, yeah. you're going to bring in a lot of sodium. You're going to be holding a lot of body water. And if we're in 48, 72 hours, maybe 
you could still have a little bit of water flux and you're okay with that. It's a mindful choice yeah. as long as you make that decision. Okay, well, I'm going to get right back on track afterwards. And if you have that plan to get back right on track afterwards, if you have that plan of, I know what this is going to do and I'm okay with this, there is nothing wrong with making that choice. And this is that distinction between that false dichotomy of good and bad foods the nutritionists like to talk yes. about all the time. There is no good or bad food. Um I mean, there's nuance within that, but yes. what is what is more important is how nutritious is a food, how non-nutritious is a food, and how okay are we with the likely outcomes to um, our goals if we eat this more non-nutritious food. And as long as your actions and your expectations are within alignment, you've made the right choice for you, and there is no guilt associated with that. Yeah, I think that's an absolutely perfect way of saying it, man, because I've experienced this too, even working with clients, let's say a situation where, I don't know, it was a client's uh, wife's birthday or something, and they went out with their wife and they had a nice dinner and sure they went over their caloric intake or it wasn't aligned with what their particular nutrition plan is at the moment. Are you tired of spending countless hours grocery shopping, cooking, and preparing your meals? I get it. Time is precious, and that's where Icon Meals comes into play. I've partnered with Icon Meals to bring you delicious, macro-friendly, and high-protein meals that will make it easier than ever for you to achieve your fitness goals. I understand that you may have hesitations over the cost of a meal prep service compared to cooking food at home. But let's face it, how often do you spend more money eating out because you didn't have time to prepare your food at home anyways? With Icon Meals, you not only save time, but you invest in your health. These meals are carefully crafted to be healthier and more in line with your fitness goals than most of the food that you eat out anyways. So why wait? Visit iconmeals.com and explore their wide array of mouth-watering meals. And as a special bonus for listening to this podcast, use code JOSEPH10 at checkout for a special discount off of your order. By the way, you can find all of the necessary links in the description of this podcast. Don't let time be a barrier to your success. Choose Icon Meals and fuel your journey towards a healthier, fitter you. Um, and for some reason, they inherently feel like they shouldn't partake in those behaviors, right? Mm -hmm. Because- It happens all the time. Yeah, it's it's interesting because it's almost like uh, guilt that you're bringing upon yourself with without any perhaps actual rationale, right? Because when we'll check in and we have a conversation, They'll say things like, oh, I know I shouldn't have done this, but it was my wife's birthday and we had a really good time together. And I'll just ask, why should you not? Right? Like, <laughs> seriously. Enjoy right? the birthday. It's, How many does she have a year? Exactly. Right. So that it's <laughs> it's that also goes into the topic of having flexibility and not thinking you have to be on point with your plan 100% of the time and actually purposefully implementing periods of times or days where you're outside of your quote-unquote plan should be part of your plan right it's part of a sustainable long-term lifestyle plan right and that's so i like to, i like to i kind of like to throw jabs at my clients and keep them off base it's kind of like constantly very training it's constantly very coaching and so what what i like to do in these instances is you bring up a good point in where you say okay well she's got a birthday i brought up the fact that we had super bowl sunday if you look at, if you take a, a moment in the beginning of a month and plan out what's going on in the month, you'll realize that you've got a lot of instances to eat off plan and that's okay. So at the beginning of each month, make a, uh, make a list and say, okay, well, what do I have going on? I've got my wife's birthday. I've got an office party. I've got 
Christmas dinner with my family. I kind of care about my wife. I kind of care about the Christmas dinner with my family. The office party is at the low point on the totem pole. Put them in a list of least to most important. And this is assuming you have very distinct goals for yourself. But if you have very distinct goals, then you learn to balance these things. And by setting up this, this priority list beforehand, you can give yourself, you can be more calm in your decision-making. And the reason that I say that is because you can say, well, I know that my wife's birthday is going to be coming up. I'm going to be off plan for that. Um, because I'm going to be significantly off plan for that, it makes it okay for me to be more on plan for the rest of the week because I know that I've got a treat coming up. And so then you don't think about things day to day where, oh, it's it's a mundane Tuesday and I just feel like having something. Well, I know that I'm going to be going out on Friday, so it's okay. I don't need to have that. It's a positive choice. I'm choosing to eat something else that's more on plan because I know that I'm going to be enjoying this. Um you know, coming up. And I think that when people really start to do these things where they put their events in order of importance to them, mm -hmm. it can allow them to eat more off plan without the guilt. It also allows them to stay more on plan where a situation where they may have gone off in the past because they've already told themselves, yeah, I don't really care about this as much. I don't, you know, Deborah from the cul-de-sac is throwing a, a party at her house, but I don't really like Deborah. And yeah. she, she, you know, so don't feel that out. You Nobody know, likes have, Deborah. Deborah. I mean, Deborah's awful. She's doing keto every 10, 10 uh, days, loses weight and then regains it all. So what you do is you say, okay, well, I know that I have this, it's an obligation and I want to then focus on my time with meeting friends. I'm going to make it less about food. So yeah. you prepare ahead and, and, you know, you can work with a coach and you can come up with a lot of different, um, tactics to deal with yeah. this. And one of the ones that I like to do is, and as I like to say, okay, well, you're going to Deborah's house. You told me Deborah's really annoying, but you like the other friends that go to the house. So why don't we have a protein shake before you go out? And then when you're there, you can graze a little bit on food, yeah. but you're not going to go overboard because you've already had something that is decently high protein, low calorie relatively. Yeah. Um, you know, you're not going to be eating from a hunger perspective. You can make the focus on the, um, on the spending time with, with friends um, that you want to spend time with, but you've already said that this is an event that's not that important to you. So let's give you the tools to make it as easy as possible to get through this without being emotionally drawn into, into certain things. And alcohol is a really big thing, you know, mm -hmm. with, with people. And so they'll say, well, you know, if I'm not drinking, then I feel uncomfortable. And so we'll say, okay, well, that's okay. We know that you're, you're probably going to want to drink and, and, you know, this is dependent on how often do you drink and how much at one time, but why don't we say, let's set a limit before you go to, to whatever it is. And then you work with, with that client or work with yourself to set that limit. You say, okay, well, what would you be happy with? Two, three, four drinks, make that decision ahead of time and then stick to it. Because when you make that decision ahead of time, it's not a decision made when you're three drinks in. Yeah. And if you do that, if you make that decision ahead of time when it's a conscious choice, this becomes something that doesn't cause guilt afterwards. And all of this is about, one, setting yourself up for success, two, alleviating the guilt, but three, allowing you to live your social life in a way that's not broccoli and steamed chicken for the rest of your life. Yeah, that's a, a fantastic way of explaining it. And honestly, in terms of I'm going to steal that from you in terms of really thinking about what events you have coming up in the future and 
discussing or, or thinking about which are more important and which ones aren't, right? Because oftentimes, yeah. I think part of that too is guilt of like not wanting to feel like perhaps you're missing out or letting other people down or being perhaps even made fun of. Mm-hmm. And usually if you're being made fun of for your decisions, you probably need a different social circle because that's not a, <laughs> yeah. a, a positive environment, right? And we know the importance of environment as well. Um, you know, I recently filmed an episode on like the nutritional hierarchy of importance, talking about energy balance, and then all of these other variables that influence energy balance. And one of those variables that we typically don't think about is our environment, right? 100%. It's actually huge. We, that's yeah, a huge. It influence. is huge. The people we associate with not just the people we associate with, but the actual environments that we're in, right? Are Mm -hmm. they stressful environments? Are they environments that perhaps make it more difficult for you to stick to your dietary choices? Is there there only candy in the break room at work? Yeah, exactly, right? And so at the end of the day, I think what anyone's goal who struggles with um, these behaviors perhaps is modifying your environment to make it as easy as possible to perhaps adhere to these behaviors, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Oftentimes you hear people think about or, or, or say things like people who are really fit have a lot of self-discipline. And in many ways they do, but in many ways, first off, it's not a difficult thing to do because it's something they enjoy, right? Yeah. And two, their environment is set up in a way where it's easy to adhere to the things they're trying to achieve, right? So I think that's one thing that people can take away from listening to this, like really think about your environment, think about the things you do on a daily basis, think about how the people in your life and your environment influence your choices. And think about perhaps what I try to share with my clients is like, what are the biggest levers you could pull that are going to give you the biggest return on investment, right? Um, So think about small little behaviors that you can implement that will make it substantially easier for you to adhere to, to your plan, right? Like, for example, like you were mentioned, going out to a party and Barbara's there. Or, or no, Deborah, right? It's, De- it's always there. Deborah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's always Deborah. But anyways, let's go. Let's say you go to a party and it's you're hanging out with Deborah and a group of friends. And this particular group of friends is always partaking in behaviors or choices that you don't want to partake in, right? Is it easier to go out with those friends and say, no, I'm not going to do these things while those people actively do those things? Or is it easier to just say, hey? I'm not going to come tonight, right? It's probably easier to modify your environment by not putting yourself in that environment. Um, so I'm I'm really happy that you brought that up, man. Now, one thing I really want to talk about is let's say somebody has um, identified that they eat frequently out of stress, right? Or mm-hmm. uh, out of emotions. They've identified this as a behavior that they want to uh, change. You've already discussed some particular tips that people can implement to try to at least be mindful of these behaviors and then make an informed decision as to whether they are or are not going to behave in in a certain way, right? One of the Mm. things that I really try to develop with my clients, and I'm sure you do too, is is first and foremost, having a healthy dietary pattern that supports hunger and satiety regulation. Because in general, if you're satiated, you feel full, you're much less likely to partake in certain behaviors. This right? is a so, really long-winded way of saying eat fruits and vegetables. Yep, eats fruits and vegetables, <laughs> protein. You can foods, have fiber in your diet. Right, right, yeah. <laughs> but but aside from that, aside from having a healthy nutritional pattern, aside from being, being physically active, um, what are some other recommendations or conversations that you have with clients to try to address these behaviors specifically? 
So I have I have two things that I that I think would be great answers for this. Okay. The first I'll outline them first. The first one that I like to do is one, we know that a lot of these things are caused by stress itself, right? So managing stress can often relieve these symptoms that we have of, okay, well, I really need to reach for the donut or whatever it is. Um, and then on top of that, if stress is still a bit overwhelming, because let's be honest, it's very hard to manage stress a lot of the times, particularly when you're first starting out. So then you need some strategies to actually manage the cravings and the, and the potential binge eating itself. Now, as a caveat, before I get into to both of those, if you have actual binge eating or disordered eating, I would really look into professional psychiatrist mm -hmm. or psychologist in some mm -hmm. manner. And that doesn't mean that you don't need a nutrition coach. What it means is this is a multifactorial issue. And if we're going to be holistic about um, care, the psychological aspect needs to be treated just as much as the habits and routines based yeah. aspect. And so there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. And I've certainly talked to my clients and I've had clients and I've said, Hey, let's bring a, psych a psychiatrist in on this. She and I will consult to find the best path forward for you because the psychiatrist isn't going to know how to, how to make you perform the best. They're not going to know how to, exactly. uh, you know, give you the best physique or health, but they will know how to help you manage the mental aspect a little bit better yeah. than most coaches will. And that's okay. Because again, if you're looking at a, um, at medical treatments, there's a reason there are specialists, Certainly. you know, your primary care physician, isn't the only doctor that you're ever going to see. And there's a reason And the, the same thing happens here, even though people don't really think that coaching in this manner, that people don't assume that coaching in this manner works this way, but it really does. So First, that I, what I would address is I would look to institute a way to um, deal with anxiety and ground a person, you know, some kind of grounding technique. And there's lots of different ones out there. Um, something to essentially bring you into the now, because what ends up happening with this emotional response is all you start to think about is the future of you getting that donut or that, mm. or that brownie or whatever it is. So the one that I personally use, and, and there are a lot of these, and so you might have a different one than what I have. I use something called 54321 anxiety relief. Have you ever done that before? No, but I, I think you, I know where you're going with this. Okay. Go ahead. Go ahead. So what we do is we use the main five senses um, that everyone talks about, and we use it in a way to one, break this thought pattern that you've you've constantly got going on. Because let's be honest, when you're about to binge, you're essentially ruminating on, on whatever type of food it is. Mm -hmm. And so what I like to do is I use this five, four, three, two, one technique, and it starts out with five things that you, you start to name five things that you can see. I mean, it could be, you know, the Instapot in your house. It could be your TV. It could mm -hmm. be your, um, you know, a barbell, whatever it is you literally name or write these things down, name them out loud, write them down. Four is touch. What are four things around you that you can touch? Uh, what are three things around you that you can hear? What are two things around you that you can smell? And what's one thing that you can taste? Now, by taste, I, I don't mean go out and, you know, find something to put your tongue on, but like, mm. you know, what is what is the taste or, you know, that, that you're getting inside your mouth? You know, did you have a protein shake that you could taste a little bit from earlier? The entire point of all of this is we're going to shift that mental rumination away from, oh, I just, I need to have this donut. I need to have this donut to calm down, 
Let's bring ourselves back into the moment. What's actually happening around me? And that can give you pause to be able to take that step back, identify what's happening, and then really start to think about if this is something that you really want to do. And I think breaking that stress down can really give people some perspective that they're not going to have if they just keep ruminating on the, uh, yeah. on the fact that they want this craving. And so that's where I start first. Yeah, that's after a, that. Okay, go ahead. No, sorry, sorry. That that's a, a really interesting technique. Um, I thought you were going to go a completely different direction with it than that. But that's, have you used I've, one similar? Not necessarily in terms of like a grounding technique, but usually some of the things I really talk to about with my clients when perhaps they're eating due to stress or even like mindless eating. Typically, I think you know people partake in that behavior because they might be getting a certain feeling of relief of stress, at least immediately, or perhaps some sort of reward from eating that particular food. And usually we have a discussion about other behaviors that they enjoy that are really rewarding as well, right? And mm -hmm. trying to substitute behaviors rather than trying to eliminate behaviors. Because I think it's a lot easier to substitute a behavior than it is to completely eliminate something, right? And so that's why I really enjoyed when you said at first, like even identifying when you're perhaps stress eating, because I do think that is the first step. And now once you identify, it's like, okay, what do I do next? In some situations, it's okay to eat. In other situations, perhaps you want to partake in another behavior that may be stress relieving and enjoyable for you that is not necessarily eating. And maybe it mm. is eating. Maybe it could be eating something else. Or maybe, as I've talked to my clients about, it's going outside and going for a walk. It might be stretching a little bit. It might be reading a book. It might be listening to a podcast. Anything that you find enjoyment in that typically relieves stress I think can be a perfect substitution. That's one of the things I talk to my clients about. Another thing that I typically talk about, because one of the things that I really try to be mindful of as a coach is I don't want to do any additional harm, right? And I mm -hmm. think the words we use are very powerful They're for huge. clients, right? And they, they influence their psychology as well. They're so cool. one of the things I usually tell my clients about is like, hey, there's nothing wrong. You're not doing something bad by eating food, right? Like you shouldn't feel guilty or feel really bad about your actions because you had some food. So in certain situations, I, and this is something I've done with a number of clients now, and it's similar to what you mentioned with having a protein shake before, is like, hey, if you find yourself stressed, if you want to eat a particular food, let's say it's Oreos or a donut or whatever it may be, um, let's be honest, like going outside for a walk sometimes is enjoyable, but sometimes you want the damn Oreos, right? It's like, what I try to do is implement a small behavior first that will ideally reduce the amount of food that they consume, right? So it's essentially taking a pause. And usually what I tell my clients, is like, let's have something that is satiating. So in turn, in, instead of trying to remove something from your diet, let's add something in this situation that's going to help you feel a little bit fuller. So typically a protein shake or a piece of fruit or something that has fiber, I tell them, wait 15 minutes. And then if you want to enjoy the Oreos, just have them. Typically what happens is they either don't have them at all because they feel good. Or they just have a reduced amount of it, right? Which is at, at mm -hmm. the end of the day, the goal, because I'm not going to be a hypocrite mm -hmm. here and say, I never eat donuts. I never eat Oreos. I do like all the time. <laughs> but but that's I, the I, part. Don't worry. We'll edit that out. In post. Yeah. But I put into, I do put into place these behaviors <laughs> so that I don't eat as much as I could. Right. And those are the main two strategies. I, in terms of like implementable things you can do like right now to help reduce these behaviors. But I think so you're going to, you're going to like this. You're going to like the segue that I go into next 
because you're hitting on a lot of this. So first I said that what I wanted to do was address stress directly. Yeah. And then two, I wanted to get in kind of management strategies for cravings and binge eating. Um, let's say cravings, because let's not try to address binge eating since that's sure. probably something left up to a, to a psychiatrist, but you and I are on the exact same page. And, right. and I, I really liked what you were saying there, because I think that you're bringing up a lot of the, the very best things that we can start to look into to manage these cravings that they're having. Now, I actually think step one is understanding your specific stressors and, um, the best way to do that is a food diary. Mm -hmm. I mean, you self-monitor. If you find yourself in this in this routine where you're constantly saying, "Hey, I'm resorting to you know having X food and it's making me feel guilty," then what you need to do is start a food diary, write down everything that you've you've eaten over the day, and even list how you were feeling or what happened pr just preceding that. Mm -hmm. You know, preceding that within a couple hours. That can help you identify triggers, whether they're emotional or in your environment, and they can be in your environment. I mean, maybe, maybe you go home from work and on your way home from work is Dunkin' Donuts. I'm going to be vilifying donuts so much and I don't know why, but <laughs> we're going to, we're going to say that, you know, Dunkin' Donuts is on your way home from work and you always stop in and Deborah is there and Deborah is, is, is doing another weird diet. And she's, she's just making it worse. And so you can start to over a few days to a week or two, start to realize, okay, well, what are my triggers here? And the food diary really helps that. And that can help you address things. And like you said, adjusting the food environment, maybe that's how you identify the food environment that you need to adjust. Maybe you take a different route home that doesn't go right past that Dunkin' Donuts. And by changing that, you've now all of a sudden removed the issue that you had in play. Uh, the other thing that you can do is fight food anxieties. And I'm going to say something. I, I'm going to love to hear your response on this because this can be um, controversial, but I want to let me get it all out there entirely before, um, sure. before a response, but I'd love to hear your thoughts. I am a fan of short-term or long-term detoxes of problem foods. Now, having said that, detoxing problem foods means you have had an issue. You've, you've ad admitted that you have an issue with a specific type of food. Whenever I eat these chips, I eat the entire bag and I can't stop myself. Okay, great. We're not going to vilify this food. We're not going to say that you can never have this, but how about we try this for four, six, eight weeks. We're going to make a plan to not have this food in your house. We're not going to eat this. And if the client says, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm willing to try this because I've been dealing with this my entire life. Good. We're going to detox this for a month or two. And then we're going to reconvene because we have our weekly, bi-weekly, monthly meetings or whatever you do. And I'm going to ask you, how are you feeling about this food item? And when things start to get better, then we say, okay, good. This is part of the process. Let's consider slowly reintroducing this food and see how you do. And this is how we bring this food back into your life. So you feel like you have some control because I think telling people you just need to control this or just moderate, you know, telling somebody who has an issue with a trigger food just to moderate is like telling a gambling addict, just don't gamble. Yeah. You know, in some ways you have to break that cycle. So how do you break that cycle? And I find that the detox of that type of food tends to work really well with the understanding that one, it's their choice. They, they say, I'm okay with doing this because I know that this is 
a short-term thing and, you know, come up with a, come up with a time frame. say, Hey, we'll check back in four weeks mm-hmm. and see how you're doing. And then if they're doing better, say, would you feel comfortable bringing this back in in a moderated manner? So instead of getting that family size bag of Doritos, we're going to get the individual pouches, put that, put that in. You can have it once a week, have it, then tell me your experience after having it. And if they start to say, yeah, I feel better. Great. This is, we can start to bring in more as is needed as you two decide. But in many cases that I found when I start to in, incorporate these detoxes in, in like six weeks, people are like, I'm good. I don't need it. And you're like, okay, well, that's your choice. And that's wonderful because now you are, you've adjusted your food environment. It's been your choice and you feel like you're taking control of the situation because this is your choice. So I like the idea of detoxes, assuming we know that they're not permanent and the client is in the driver's seat. What are your thoughts? Yeah, that's interesting. I've never thought of it that way um, at all, honestly. I've never used a strategy like that. Um, I've almost taken like, this sounds so funny, like the opposite approach. Uh, because You make them smoke the entire pack? Yes. Sometimes <laughs> two packs. <laughs> <laughs> well, here's the thing. And I, I get like, like, like we were talking about, this is excluding people with particular eating disorders, right? This is talking about, cause I've, I've worked with several people who, who say like, oh man, when I have this particular food, um, I just can't stop myself. I eat the whole thing, right? Whether it's Cheez-Its or potato chips or whatever it is, right? Mm -hmm. It's usually a very specific particular food. And in most situations, I think from a psychology standpoint, there's a couple things going on. They inherently think that perhaps it's a bad food that they shouldn't be eating. That's one variable that I've, that I've noticed is a commonality, as mm-hmm. well as the fact that they actively try to not eat the food as much as they can, right? Like they actively try to avoid the food. So then when they do have it, then perhaps they feel unrestricted or like they have no control and they mm-hmm. just eat and as much as, guilt as possible, right? And I've taken the opposite approach, (laughs) literally, I mean, the exact opposite of telling them to have the food every single day in a small quantity that fits within their caloric targets. Most clients have never tried that, but they have tried avoiding the food altogether. And they've, well, not that they've struggled, they do avoid, but then when they have it, they, they eat a ton of it. Right. And it's obviously very different than the approach you're having, where it's a more mindful approach And like you mentioned, the client is in the driver's seat and it's a mindful decision to actually restrict the food versus just restricting the food because you think it's bad. There's a very different thought process behind that, right? But I've I've implemented this strategy now successfully multiple times because it's been with people that perhaps like, let's say they try to avoid a strawberry donut because that's their absolute favorite since they were talking about donuts but they don't have an issue with like eating a glazed donut. That's a stupid example, but it's very highly specific. And they don't have that issue with other foods that are similar in nutritional composition, taste, flavor, et cetera. Right. So it's like, why this food, the why is, is a reason that I don't necessarily know, but I know that the commonality is that they perhaps think it is a bad food that they should avoid. And so we have the conversation of like, you know, there's no such thing as a bad food. It's contextual, et cetera. And Hey, Let's actually just have a little bit of it every day. Like, and I think the mental freedom of them knowing, like, I am allowed to have this tomorrow. Not only am I allowed, I will have this tomorrow. I don't necessarily need to have that much of it today. Right. And you find that they're, 
do you find that they're able to stick to the uh, to the moderator mounts that you've set? It, it's a, I mean, it's a, it's a process that you have to work through. It improves <laughs> yeah. over time, right? It's not yeah. like it magically works the first time, but I have noticed that it does give a lot of freedom in terms mm. of not feeling bad about eating the particular food and not having the mentality of like, well, I just had a bite. I already fucked up, so might as well just keep going, right? Because mm. that's something that people struggle with a ton. Um, yeah, man, I think, you know, there's so many parallels here between nutrition and exercise, same mentality of like, I didn't work out today, so I'm not going to work out for the next month. Right. Mm -hmm. Or like, I didn't have time to do my workout today. It's like, Hey, maybe don't do the whole workout, but just do the first exercise type of thing. It's the same, uh, parallel there. And so that's the strategy that I've used most times. Honestly, I don't work with a ton of clients who have trigger foods or really struggle with a particular type of food. But in general, that is the the main strategy I've used that's been fairly successful when they mention that it's like one particular specific thing, you know, like I, I am literally going to be implementing the strategy starting with a client that I'm working with now, where for her, it's it's just ice cream. And she's like, I can't have it because when I have ice cream, I eat a ton of it. And I'm like, that's OK. How about we just have a little bit every day and a little bit the, that, that term a little bit is different for everybody. Right. Because. Right. You can allot, and, change, and changes over time too. Exactly. As, and you can as allot a certain it. amount of your like caloric intake towards it, knowing yeah. that <clears throat> this is what I tell my clients is like, as long as your overall nutritional patterns are, are healthy and they're promoting hunger regulation and you want to allocate 300, 400 calories towards this food, ice cream, it's not that big of a deal. It's fine. Now, if you find yourself that, if you find yourself in a situation where like, you're allotting, let's say, 400 calories per day towards ice cream. And throughout the day, you're really having a hard time sticking to your nutritional plan because you're hungry throughout the day. Then perhaps think about minimizing that so that you can include other foods that are going to help you feel fuller. Mm -hmm. But if everything else is in place, who cares if you have 400 calories of ice cream, if you're within your overall uh, energy requirements, you're staying active, you're getting protein in, you're getting fiber in, all of the other stuff that you should be doing anyways, right? What are your thoughts yeah. on that? I mean, I think that this is one of those things that, um, in my opinion, you talk to coaches and they've got different strategies, right? Yeah. Or, or there are different options. I think that, that, that sounds wonderful. You know, if, if it works within the context of what you're doing, I think that it's worthwhile. And I think that the, probably the end answer to this is it's going to be client specific and yes. maybe one yes. would work better for one client and one will work better for another client. And having more tools in your toolbox is probably never a bad thing. Yes. Um, my way that that I've done that in the past probably comes with some more caveats to where you really have to explain how this is coming out so it doesn't sound like a negative thing with the detox. But it's possible, now that I'm thinking about the way that you do it, it's possible that what I might start doing is incorporating yours as a first measure and then using the detox as a stopgap because let's say that we do yours and we're working on getting that down and they just consistently have issues with being able to moderate that into what's essentially a reasonable amount to allow the rest of yeah. the diet to, to be nutritious enough to say, okay, yeah. well, we're, we're doing good. Well, then maybe what we do is we go to that detox at that point and say, hey, look, we, we tried this one. It didn't work. Let's try this other one. See how that works. And maybe that allows us to get back to that point that you were working on with your initial thing. And I actually think that these can kind of be complementary. Yeah. And I, I, again, the the reason why I even use this strategy is, okay, 
again, outside of the context of people with eating disorders or people who actually, I, I have a hard time using the word food addiction, but let's say in this context, actually have a certain addiction to a particular food, right? So outside of the context of somebody who would need professional help from a psychiatrist, for example, I'm not sure the particular reason why some people struggle with some types of foods, but I do think that those behaviors can be worked through by exposing yourself to those foods without guilt. Because mm -hmm. again, I think guilt is one of the big reasons why the behavior occurs in the first place. Right? I agree. And I've yeah. done, I, I've experienced this myself, man. Like before I knew much about nutrition, before I started coaching, before I went through graduate school, I believed in a lot of the silly myths like carbs are bad, et cetera. Right. And Don't I, eat after six. Yeah. Right. Only after six. Yeah. I thought you said only after sex. And I said, I haven't heard that. <laughs> that <before."> too. <laughs> um, but before they're, 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 they're pretty good. But uh, anyway, so I've fallen into these myths about thinking particular foods are bad. And so as a kid, I, I struggled with my weight and it, it obviously as a kid, a lot of things are out of your control, but mm. it was just the way we ate at home, et cetera. Coming from a Spanish household, like food was always a reward, like fin was, finish your plate. Yeah, exactly. Dude, the stories I have from when I was a kid, my mom would serve finish, me finish your plate, plate and then you can have dessert. You're like, wait. I'm really full as is. So you only had extra calories and then dessert. Dude, if I didn't finish my first plate, my mom would serve me a second plate. That's like I mean, punish my mother. My mother's Italian. Yeah. Do you know what? It, it, that doesn't work. You can't. You yeah. can't refuse Italian cooking either. Exactly. And it's and it's all super heavily carb based. Yeah. And I'm not vilifying carbs. I'm just saying a little bit more protein on the plate yeah. would have been nice. Yeah. Exactly. So check this out, man. As a young teenager, I was fairly overweight. And then the methods used for me to lose weight were one, more exercise, positive. I started okay. swimming competitively. And two, my mom just thought carbs were bad, so she cut out all carbs. Which is great when you're swimming. Yeah, right? I, dude, my, <laughs> my dinner, like three or five, three or four times a week was just pretty much a whole rotisserie chicken because my mom just thought carbs caused fat gain. So... From that period onward, I really always thought carbs were pretty bad for you, right? Especially simple carbs. And again, context and nuance is important. You shouldn't be eating a crazy amount of simple carbs uh, and the source matters. But in general, I would try to avoid them. And so my weight would always yo-yo, especially mm. when I like, when, when, I, when I started college and I was on my own for the first time. And had like, I made my own food choices. My mom wasn't cooking for me. I was doing everything on my own. So like my weight would yo-yo a lot. Not a crazy amount like other people's, but probably plus or minus 15 to 20 pounds. And I would chuck it up to like, I was just bulking, but mm -hmm. it, it wasn't. Like I was just stuffing my face as much as I can, eating whatever I wanted. And then I would feel really bad when I gained 15 pounds. And I would drop it by avoiding carbs, right? And then the one thing that I think personally has helped me a ton now is just one, having more knowledge, but not having the guilt associated with those foods. Like the thing is, there is no like crazy reward when I eat something that is carb heavy and there's also no guilt when I eat it. So it's just like another food. And well, that's because you've been, you've been working really well on that restriction mindset. 
which is a really big thing in what you're talking about and what a lot of people deal with. I mean, if you come at, at ultra, so we all have been eating in a certain way. And clearly the reason that you look into a coach or look into a nutritionist is because you want to make some changes. Now you need to make some changes in habits that you've likely been doing for decades and decades. And so it feels like a restrictive process. Mm -hmm. And this happens a lot with people that are like, okay, well, I, to, to lose weight, I need to cut out carbs or I need to cut out all the foods that have any flavor in my life. But a good mindset shift here is to really start to think about what you had mentioned earlier, where it's an addition, it's not a subtraction. You're adding in more mm -hmm. whole foods. You're adding in more lean proteins. You're adding in vegetables for the first time in your life. You're, you're finally eating a piece of fruit, you know, and, and viewing it as choice and positivity sound like the hippiest things, but it is yeah. the groundwork for all of this. When you have a feeling of autonomy, when you have the feeling of I'm making these choices and essentially when you work with a nutritionist or you work with a coach, they're helping you make those choices based on what you say your goals are. Yeah. So you're essentially making those choices. And if there's something that you disagree with, with your coach, just bring that up and say, Hey, is there an alternative to this? And, and they're happy to work with you if they can, but going at this from a mindset of positivity of what you're adding in rather than on what you're cutting out is really the way to make this sustainable. Because if you're going to constantly think, oh, I can't have that, or I'm restricting that, then all you're going to do is, is feel like you want to have that. And then when you finally do, you're going to feel like you failed. Yeah. So you're setting yourself up for this feeling of failure. Whereas if you had a positive mindset of I'm choosing to eat these things as a regular part of my diet, but then I can also eat these other things sometimes. And that finding that balance with concessions is the really difficult thing. Yeah, that's beautifully put. Yeah, I, I was going to say there that the thing that really helped me and where I'm at today was just removing that stigma of good and bad foods. Mm -hmm. And truly one like caring about your health and wanting to be healthy like needs to be a priority because I think that's what essentially allows you or encourages you to make healthy behaviors, right? Because let's not lie, like I like the way pizza tastes more than chicken breast, right? And if it works <laughs> me, I would just only eat pizza. But I don't do that because I care about my health. That being said, if I want pizza, I'm going to have pizza, right? And it's that it's it's the breaking away from thinking that certain things are good or bad and truly allowing yourself to have the foods that you want when you want them, but also truly caring about your health and making sure that health is a priority, right? Because I feel oftentimes people say that their health is a priority, but then like their behaviors and their actions don't show action. that. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So like at, at the, sure. I think one thing we haven't touched on and is exactly that, like at, at, at a baseline level, your health has to be a priority to you, right? To, to engage in healthy behaviors and actually start to change your behaviors. Like it has to be a priority. And again, some people say it is, and it, it really isn't. And perhaps it becomes more of a priority if unfortunately you have some sort of health complication, yeah. right? And that, again, is where most people actually make change because yeah. they haven't seen perhaps the consequence, experience, experience the consequence of their actions, right? Because, man, behavior change is tough, right? Behavior change is really tough. Mm -hmm. And I mean, we've talked about a number of variables here that influence your behaviors. But at the end of the, at the, end of the day, there needs to be a strong motivating factor. And I'm not talking about mm -hmm. motivation, but like, I want to do this every single day. 
but your overall this is um, where they talk about the the why yeah 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 you know and, and yeah. it's it, in its in its base form the why is still a motivation but it's i like to differentiate it from your motivations because it's a more it's the purpose it's a mainstay commitment whereas your daily motivations will ebb and flow yes and um and you know changing what you've done over decades and decades is a very difficult thing and i find one way that can really help people is to understand the anatomy of a habit and that's because our the choices that we make in our daily lives a lot of them are just habit driven like we're on autopilot yeah and um and anatomy of a habit comes down to three points you have a reminder a routine and a reward and so the reminder i can use an example that we already used a reminder is i'm driving home from work and i pass the dunkin donuts mm -hmm. my routine is i go into the dunkin donuts and my reward is i get my donut yeah so when you're trying to promote productive habits or change habits that you've decided are unproductive with the reminder routine and reward, the way that you do this is by changing the routine. And we're, this is fun because we're going to come full circle back to something that you were recommending earlier that was excellent. Um, so you change, you figure out a way to change the routine. You can also change the reward, but the routine changes what is, what is most important to change or sorry, change the reminder, but you can also change the, the, the routine. If you want to change the reminder, changing the reminder is go home a different way. A lot of times that's not possible. And another example is you get home from work, you have kids, and the reminder is that you get home from work and the routine is that you typically go and you grab the Oreos. Mm. And then the reward is that you get the Oreos. So if we know that changing the routine is typically the way to shift unproductive habits to productive habits, we start to think of, okay, well, what kind of substitute actions or foods can we put into play in that routine to help break what we are currently doing? So your reminder is I come home from work. Your routine is typically I reach for the Oreos because that's just what I do when I get home. So then you start to think, okay, well, how can I change this routine? And you say, well, I could either reach for a different food, maybe an apple, maybe non-fat Greek yogurt, maybe whatever it is. Um, you know, that it doesn't necessarily have to be close to what you were choosing. It's nice if it is, it doesn't necessarily have to be close, but on the more nutritious spectrum. Um, but typically anything that is a traditionally nutritious food is a great option because your body wants to eat at that point clearly. So mm -hmm. give it something like, you know, a banana or yeah. non-fat Greek yogurt or whatever it is, or Figure out a substitution that is a productive activity. As long as the activity is productive, this can be a great thing. And pro productivity can come in two fashions. It can either be something that relieves stress. So go play Call of Duty. Go read a book. Yeah. Go take a walk outside. Or it has to be productive in the way that it gets something done that will relieve stress in the future. Finish up that project that you had for work. Do the calls that you needed to do. As long as it's something that will improve your life, Shifting your energies from, I need to get these Oreos to, I'm going to do something that is, I'm choosing to do something that is supportive of either relieving my stress or bringing me closer to the goals that I say that I have. And so I really liked when you had mentioned substitutions earlier, because it reminded me of that whole anatomy of a habit type yeah. thing. And the substitutions are really a great way to deal with this because your body is kind of antsy to do something. Yeah.
Hey guys, some of you may not know that I'm the scientific advisor for a supplement company called Outwork Nutrition. I help with the formulation of new products to help ensure that they're effective and backed by science. Unlike many other supplement companies out there, we don't rely on exaggerated claims or flashy marketing tactics. Instead, we let the science speak for itself. We take pride in formulating products that deliver real results, helping you achieve your fitness goals in a meaningful way. If you're in the market for supplements like protein powder, pre-workout, or recovery products, make sure to check us out at outworknutrition.com. And as a thank you for being an avid listener of this podcast, use code Joey for an exclusive discount at checkout. You can find a link to our website down in the description of this podcast episode. Remember, our goal is to empower you with science-backed supplements that truly make a difference. Choose Outwork Nutrition and elevate your fitness to new heights. Yeah, that was beautifully put, man. I want to wrap up this conversation by bringing up one more topic, which is, so, so far we've discussed, obviously, why do people stress eat, uh, identifying the behavior, determining what type of behavior you want to engage in. If you don't want to engage in these particular behaviors, what are some actionable things you can start to think about and implement literally today to help improve these behaviors? And now let's talk about, let's say somebody is actually implementing these behaviors. They're having some success. I'm sure this is a situation that you've experienced multiple times with clients. They're seeing some success. And then, of course, eventually, inevitably, they have a slip up, right? They perhaps behave in the way they used to previously or engage in a behavior that they don't want to engage in and they feel bad about it and they feel like now they're failing and backtracking. How do you deal with that situation? What are what are the what do what do those conversations look like and how are they different than perhaps the initial conversations where you're just giving general recommendations in terms of things you can do to 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 modify these behaviors? So the question is essentially how do we get back on track? Exactly. And and not just how do you get back on track? But because at least for me, I try to discuss with my clients to use that as a learning experience, really. And mm -hmm. I guess it is essentially getting back on track, but also not having any negative. Because I think there's a difference between a coach who says, hey, you messed up. Let's just get back on track versus mm -hmm. really digging deep and like discussing why there's nothing inherently wrong with that particular behavior and making sure that the client doesn't have any sort of negative emotion or attached to it, feel weird about their behaviors, right? Because like we were talking about earlier, like it's not that big of a deal, but objectively, it's not that big of a deal. If you went on vacation for a week and you quote unquote fucked up, but like clients do feel like they made a huge mistake, right? And perhaps yeah. they might feel like they've been doing so well for the past month and like they really messed up now and they're back to where they were at before. Um, what does that look like? Have you experienced that work before working with clients? Yeah. I mean, I think every coach that's been working with somebody long enough has experienced this type of thing. I think that, um, that mindfulness practices really come to mind in this type of situation and um, a mindfulness routine. So I would, I typically, this is one of the things that I recommend because you can cut these off before they become quicksand or before they snowball. And I find that my best recommendation for this would be to cut it off before it gets to that. And so when I have check-ins, I actually have questions in there that deal with like their emotional mm -hmm. um, state and how they're dealing with things. And then, and a lot of times what I'll do is I'll institute a mindfulness awareness exercise and it's, 
it's really funny when we talk about all these different ways to deal with psychology because they all sound so like hippie-ish, but they really work if they can bring you some conscious idea of why you may be doing some things because yeah. understanding the why of why you're doing something gives you an ability to address it, to yeah. identify what's happening and then either cut it off at the source or to figure out a way to deal with it. And so for me, knowledge is power in these types of situations. So what Rather than allowing it to a situation like that, what I like to do is use a process nightly that's three awareness questions. What am I doing? Why am I doing this? And where is it taking me? And a lot of times when I when I find that somebody is having emotional, let's let's say that this is an emotional dysregulation type of situation, you know, they're they're overly stressed or they're feeling like they're failing. I have them ask themselves this and write the answers down and and preferably if they'll do it, shoot me an email with it and then we can talk this out but when you ask yourself these things um they make the client aware of their daily routines what's happening on the daily it allows them to evaluate the motivations behind those things and then that puts into focus whether or not it's bringing them towards their goals yeah and so when you start to put these in things into perspective you can reiterate what you're seeing there to the client and you can say hey what I want you to do is I want you to come up with some, let's say that you're a third person and your friend has told you, this is what they're experiencing. This is where their goals are. And these are their answers to these three questions. How would you recommend they deal with it? Because coming from a third person perspective, people will often know what they should do, yeah. even if it gives them anxiety to take that leap. So I tell them, let's, let's look at this from a third person perspective. We've identified what's going on by using our motivational awareness questions. And I want you to come up with solutions to friend X's problem yeah. and then send them to me. And you're not leaving them hanging, but what you want to do is you want them to come up with the solutions first because mm -hmm. they're sitting there in that situation. With them sitting there in that situation, they're going to start to think about things that are, even though they're thinking about friend X, they're going to start to think about it from their perspective. Yeah. And you as a coach is never going to be as insightful into somebody else as they are into themselves, but you can give them the tools to be able to overcome these things. So this is a great way to one, gather information, two, get them learning and start starting to think about the way to, um, to address these solutions themselves. But then you're there as a mediator or a parachute to be yeah. able to come back once you see the solutions and say, hey, I saw that you said this. I really like this part of that. How about considering this for this other part? It gives you as a coach an area to explore because let's be honest, if you've ever been a coach that's been in this situation, one of the biggest issues is reaching people psychologically is yeah. extremely difficult. Yes. And it's extremely difficult because there is no set of answers. So the best thing that you can do is you can, you can gather information you can learn what that experience is, is from their viewpoint. And you will see a lot of that when they come up with the solutions. Yeah. And then that can give you the insight into how you can find an answer for them. Now, just like with anybody else or anytime you work with any clients, the biggest issue here is getting somebody to email you these answers. Yeah. And, uh, but, but when you do, you have a lot of insight into how you can help a person. And, and I think that a lot of coaches, what they'll do is they'll take this upon themselves and they'll feel like failures because they don't know the exact answer for this specific client. Um, 
you know, when they're, when they're having problems and you're not, there's no way for you to automatically know that anyways. Yeah. Those are some fantastic points, man. Um, I, I do have a similar approach where I will ask clients to ask, to, to answer a series of questions. It's funny that you brought up that the most difficult thing is getting an email back. It can be sometimes, right. Mm -hmm. But, uh, asking similar questions in terms of like, why did you partake in this behavior? Right. Because mm -hmm. identifying, I think identification is incredibly important. And then from there, essentially asking them to come up with a game plan if they were to experience a similar situation in the future. Right? I think that that's key. Yeah. And I think that that's a, that's a part that, I mean, maybe I'm being cavalier here, but I think that that's a part that a lot of coaches get wrong. And I think a lot of coaches get it wrong for a good reason. I think that a lot of coaches get that wrong because they want to help. Yes, yes. And they want to help so much that they just start throwing out answers. Yeah. But but like I said, um, I think that the right way to get to this is a fact-finding mission more than anything else. And to understand a person's emotional state, you use things like these awareness questions. You know, what am I doing? Why am I doing this? Yeah. That's a big one. And where is it taking me? And where is it taking me is great because that really does put things in perspective for them to understand, oh, you know, this is really a counterproductive thing for yeah. me, um, which can help provide that impetus for, um, for some change. And then by providing that, um, that outlook as, okay, well, you're going to help a third person. I think that they're much more honest that way, because I think that if you ask them, Hey, you know, what would you do for yourself? I think that people think you know, I don't know because nothing works for me. Okay. Well, yeah. what would you do for somebody else? Oh, okay. You know, I've got some ideas there and I think that you get a lot better answers that way. Yeah. That's a great way to put it. Yeah. Usually what I, the way I frame it is like if in a similar situation in the future, so it's not this exact situation, but I think like you mentioned, uh, framing it as, as them being a third party is a really smart way of going about it too. Uh, but yeah, I've always had the approach of like, I'm not going to give you the answer. I want you to come up with the answer. I'm going to guide you towards that answer, ideally, because it's also more empowering, right? People come up with their own solution. They feel more empowered. They're likely more willing to execute on that solution. Because let's be honest, uh, how often do we actually do stuff or carry through with stuff just because somebody told us to do it? Because we're told to. Yeah. Like you can do You can do things like that for two to three months pretty well. And yeah. that's why things like, I'm going to, I'm going to bash keto and carnivore. Yeah. But that's why things like keto and carnivore work because yeah. some influencer tells people to use this and they can stick to that for two to three months, but then it's a relapse because it's not a sustainable long-term thing. Yeah. And I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with things like keto when it's medically necessary. But what I am saying is one, there's never going to be anything that's as effective as an overall omnivore diet. So unless you have a neurological disorder or some reason to be restrictive, and anything that is super restrictive on fruits and vegetables, I mean, come on, man. You know, there's, there's, we might see um, significant weight loss initially because of muscle glycogen and water loss, but yeah. is it sustainable long term? What are we going to be doing with our triglycerides over time? What are we going to be doing with our propensity to have cancer later in life? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's just so I, so I steer people away from that type of stuff as much as possible. And if you need medically keto, go to an RD. Yeah. Don't, don't go to a coach. Go to, yeah. go to an RD because that's, that's something that you really need. But, um, yeah. but yeah, you know, in these, in these general, in these general, you know, lifestyle change things, I mean, we've got a lot of options. And so let's explore those options to find out what's right for you. And, yeah. and, you know, like we've both been saying here, giving a client autonomy 
one is is going to solidify the fact that they might do this long term much more greatly than than anything else. Autonomy is is a key thing in in the way that I view motivation and and long term mm -hmm. uh, motivation where you were trying to make this an internalized um, type of thing. And when you give them the ability to come up with the solutions themselves, you also increase their feelings of competency, which is yes. another key aspect of this. And feelings of competency, if someone is constantly told the answers, you, one, don't remember it as well. Yeah, yeah. But two, you don't feel a sense of accomplishment or the fact that that maybe I, I know more about what I'm talking about than what I thought. Yeah. And by consistently reinforcing both the autonomy and the competency, um, you're building their ability to be able to handle this long after they've graduated from your coaching. And then by being there, when they send you that email with all of this information, that's the relatedness aspect of all of this to where they've got a coach that's there as a parachute or a partner. And, um, and that gives them even greater feelings of competency because they know that even if they have some struggles, they've got someone to go to for an answer. But it's beautiful when they come up with the answers themselves because this is preparing them for life beyond coaching. Yeah, that's yeah, that's literally perfectly said. And I, I love how you ended that with saying preparing people for life after coaching because people are not going to be working with a coach the rest of their life. And our goal I is would to I would love to work with my clients for 20 straight years. I mean, I would too. But it's not gonna <laughs> but it's not gonna happen. And yeah. if I'm doing my job right, I shouldn't have to. Exactly. Right. You know, and so and so I like getting in with those guys. And I have had clients that are, that have worked with for years and years and years, but they don't need me. Exactly. I make I make their life easier and I make yeah. their life easier because I come up with a program for them. I mm -hmm. am there for when, you know, they want um, their nutrition's like they have nutrition questions or all yeah. that kind of stuff. And it just makes their life easier. They're busy enough as is. Yeah. And it's not like these people, it's not like most clients in general aren't smart enough to do this on their own. They are. But when you do it with a coach, you get it done in a much more efficient manner. Yes. Much more quickly with someone that's there with you as a partner with add some extra buy-in because you're now putting money down on the line. Yeah. And that sounds, you know, it's an investment, but it's good to have money down on the line because, you know, if you didn't, maybe you would fall off track a little bit more, but you're like, shit, I'm paying $200 a month. Yeah. I may as well do this. And, you know, so there's all these benefits to having it in play, but you know, you and I both believe that we should be setting up people for autonomy um, long-term. And I think that all of these different things that we've talked about, I mean, we've gone over a lot of different strategies that people yeah. can use. And I think that it's wonderful because you may not use all of these, yeah, but you may find one that really clicks with you. And if you find one that clicks with you and, and makes that change, then, then we've done our job. Yeah. Anyways, my man, let's go ahead and wrap it up here. Honestly, this has been I've only I only started the the podcast three months ago, but this has been my favorite podcast episodes by far because I feel like I've learned a ton in terms of listening to you speak and listening to how you handle certain situations with clients. And I've definitely learned a couple of things here that I'm going to start implementing with my clients, no doubt. So thank you. So I, I actually think that this is mutual because I think I'm going to start using your your <laughs> manner and then I'm going to use that detox as a backup. I actually like it in that like that one two punch because I think that leading in with yours is is a good way to test the waters to see what levels of control that we have. Yeah, and you can yeah. you can honestly obviously have a conversation before even implementing it with the client and mm -hmm. see what their perspective is and think and, which and would you prefer? Take, 
Yeah, exactly. And see if they think it's a good idea or not. Right. Because mm -hmm. for me, a lot of the times when I've used that strategy in particular, like I'll ask a client, have you ever thought of doing something like this before? And they're like, mm -hmm. no, but that seems like, like that makes sense, you know? And in that situation, I'm like, okay, let's go ahead and try to implement the strategy. And it usually works in that context. The more uh, options that you can give people that work, the better. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, because at the end of the day, and, and I guess a lot, a lot of people say this. I was going to say, do you know Stan Efforting? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I just had him on the podcast. I don't, I don't know him personally. I know of. Yeah, that. I just had him on the podcast last week, and, and he has a phrase that he's coined, which is compliance is the science, right? And it is, essentially, it's like, in terms of compliance, in terms of adhering to something, in terms of having a particular goal or having a particular nutritional intervention you're trying to follow, it inherently implies that you need to change something about what you currently do which inherently implies that there's going to be a certain degree of restriction, but that the modality of restriction is what you should have um, control over, right? Choosing the type mm -hmm. of restriction that feels the least restrictive to you. And that's essentially what we're trying to do with these tools, right? It's like, hey, yeah. all of these tools should, in theory, get you to the same place. Some of these tools work better for some people than others, which honestly, I would love if there was a sort of screening tool that would tell you what sort of tool is best. I'm not sure we're yeah. there yet. But in general, in general, there is some trial and error, right? And at the end of the day, you want to choose the one that just feels easiest for you. Because in order to actually, I, I, I think all people, uh, all humans are inherently lazy, right? So if, if we, we we're, inherently, people, we're inherently neutral, I think, to where think we're so? like, I think we're inherently neutral. I, and part of that is laziness. It's like, okay, well, what is the real payback for me if I do this? Yeah. And we ask that a lot. And particularly when clients are starting out, they don't know that there's going to be a distinct payback. And one of the things that we really see with emotion is if a person isn't 100% sold on choices, they won't give 100% effort because why give 100% effort if you're not guaranteed to succeed? Now, again, we keep going back to these anatomy things yeah. but, or uh, uh, autonomy things, but this is great because this helps to reinforce all of the reasons for coaches and people to really value these things. When you have more autonomy in a situation, you have a greater feeling of the chances of that working out, which means the effort that is given is much higher. Yeah. And so when we work as coaches from a controlling aspect, we undermine people's autonomy and we damage their feelings of relatedness with us. And so by giving people the options within reason, obviously, we want to give people options that we believe in that work and that promote proper psychological health and proper habits, but there's different ways to get to an end result. And, um, and yeah. I think that, that all of the things that we talked about today, I mean, I, this was wonderful in my opinion, because yeah. we, we covered a lot of different things with a lot of practical advice. Yeah. And what I was going to get at with the lazy thing is across the board, if you can make it easier to achieve the particular goal you're trying to achieve, you're more likely to achieve it, right? Well, we're, we're like uh, a chemical gradient. We'll take the, <laughs> the path of least resistance to get to where yeah, we want exactly, to go. Exactly, exactly. And so all of this comes down to like having tools or methods that are effective, having a wide array of them, and choosing the ones that feel easiest for you in particular, given that the tools are all equally effective in the sense that they'll get you to the same place, right? Mm -hmm. Um, anyways, my man, really appreciate you taking time to be here today. Would you please let everybody know uh, where they can find you, your social media, your website, if somebody wants to work with you? 
Sure. You can always find me on my website, MauiAthletics.com. That has links at the bottom to all major social media pages. If you have any questions, feel free to reach out to me on Instagram at Dr. Allen, A-L-L-A-N, bacon like the food. Um, you know, and, and certainly if you have any questions about this, this podcast interview, ask Dr. Joey or ask me and, uh, and we're more than happy to help out. Awesome, brother. And I'll make sure to link all of your stuff down in the description of this episode. Guys, thank you so much for listening to the entirety of the podcast. If you've made it so far, if you enjoyed this episode, I would just ask of you to please leave a rating and a review, right? I always forget the second word there. And if you're watching on YouTube, please take a second to, to give the video a thumbs up and subscribe to my channel so you don't miss any future videos. I'll catch you guys in next week's video.